Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Governor Maura Healey wants Massachusetts to lead the world in its fight against climate change. And she staked her claim by naming the first in the nation climate chief to her cabinet. But some advocates want more direct action. And a new study documents a 50-year dramatic rise of warm climates during our region's winters. With less snow and fewer frozen ponds, is New England's very identity melting away? Plus, a lot of exciting buzz for a new vaccine for honeybees. Will it offer new protection for the world's best pollinator? That and more on our Environmental News Roundtable. Later in the show, from depictions on ancient Greek vases to portraits in English sitting rooms, Black people in Western art can be found in hundreds of portraits and tapestries, hidden in plain sight. But of course, I never really knew that Black art existed in this way, where there were Black models being portrayed positively in the 18th century or in the 17th century. Author Zaria Ware takes readers through an entertaining and revelatory tour of Western artwork and the Black people who ended up on the canvas in her book, Black Art, the Audacious Legacy of Black Models and Artists in Western Art. But first, joining me, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Kelly. Also with me, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Kelly. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. And Kabul Eames, political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Welcome, Kabul. Thank you. Great to be back. Well, I'm glad to have you all around. I I tell you, I could just never run out of conversation and talking about um, climate change. (laughs) You know, it is the issue of our times. And um, uh, boy, we are living it. You know, um, it takes something like these warm winters, I think, to really make an impression on maybe people who hadn't thought about it in these terms uh, before. But first, let's take a listen. This is GBH's meteorologist, Dave Epstein, and he was speaking on our morning edition in January and said the warmer winters are becoming the norm, and he points to data from the Blue Hill Observatory in Massachusetts. So since 2010, 48 months have been record top 10 months of warmth. In that time, one has been top 10 cold. Hmm. So you can just see it just, it's just, that's the trend. 
All right, let's talk about it. I mean, I know people are listening to this conversation that we've had over many months uh, and years at this point and say, don't they talk about this all the time? <laughs> but this is rather startling, I think, Dr. Uh, Bernstein, to hear that kind of statistic. Yeah, and you could come up with 10 others. You know, we're past the point of acknowledging that warming is happening, and we're also past the point of being clear that humans are causing it. And so the real question is, what are we doing about it? And and I think that's the question of, of this moment. And I'm delighted to hear uh, and see that this administration in our Commonwealth has really taken this uh, issue on uh, with the attention I think it deserves. So, um, Cobble, I have to say, I'm born, raised in the South, so I like warm weather at this time. I love it. But I am well aware that this is not good news. Well, as someone who's also from the South, I completely agree with you. When I moved here, you know, the New Englanders would say, you know, wait a minute, the the weather will change if you don't like it. So there was this badge of honor of like harsh winters and, you know, who can go outside in their flip flops in the coldest degree weather. Um, But the warmer conditions, while certainly, you know, are pleasing for those who want to take a walk for lunch, it is not pleasing to scientists. It is alarming to climate activists. And to Aaron's point, our new leadership has really taken on this um, in a robust way. And I'm, I'm thankful for it because the warming temperatures are cause for concern and they have a whole lasting effect that you know we could talk about for days that is really going to make this situation much worse than we anticipate. So Beth, weigh in. Yeah, so like I remember when I was the climate reporter at the Boston Globe way back, I wrote um, like in 2008, I think, or 2007, a piece about warming New England winters. And it was it was profound, but it, it wasn't happening quickly. And what I've noticed, and I think everyone feels, is that it, it's, it, it's accelerating faster than many people um, had anticipated. And what's more, it is this sort of weird weather, right? It's, it's you know, really cold one day, then it's, you know, not the next. Um, those are all likely related to climate, not definitely, but likely. Now we know that climate change is upon us. So I think it bodes well that we're trying to address it. And I agree with um, Aaron, Dr. Bernstein very much. It's, it's what are we going to do about it? And we need to double down on, you know, getting rid of greenhouse gases so we can um, have a future for uh, Boston and uh, the world. So I wanted to add to this conversation um, a piece by uh, Billy Baker in The Globe, who pointed to the lack of the snow, uh, particularly the lack of the snow in ski areas in New England, um, all of the cold weather images that are that really create the identity of New England and how these warming winters actually threaten that. And I have to say, I mean, there's so many issues with warming <laughs> temperatures that you don't think about that. But actually, I think that has meaning. Um, Dr. Bernstein, you want to weigh in on that? It absolutely does, Kelly. You know, there. if you go to Jamaica Pond, uh, there's a plaque uh, next to the pond on on. Uh, promontory on the promontory overlooking the pond that has images of the ice making facility that was on the pond. They literally literally made ice. It was so reliable that the pond would be frozen over that there was a company that did business by producing ice. Well, 
the pond hasn't had any ice and it certainly hasn't had enough ice to skate on. There's actually a famous Winslow Homer etching of, of a couple skating on Jamaica Pond. So it is transformative. The warming is transformative for industry. It's transformative for understanding of meaning of place. And I think that's critically important to recognize in the context of indigenous peoples in the United States in particular. Um, and again, I think we need to really think hard and quick about what we're gonna do to address these changes. Cause as Beth pointed out, uh, they're happening a lot faster than even those of us who've been paying attention had thought uh, was going to roll out uh, even a few decades ago. So I keep thinking, Beth, that um, uh, if 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 it's a struggle for we humans um, to you know try to grasp well what is our identity now and um, as we say finding our identity melting away, now I think uh, maybe people can understand the confusion about animals and wildlife you know showing up at places that they've always shown up on at the time that they've shown up. But because the climate is all off, they're confused and then they go off and that sets a chain off where much other stuff is happening that has never happened before. It sort of all makes sense. So it's, you know, you, you have an identity crisis for humans and a real identity crisis for the wildlife, um, too. Yeah, I mean, that's a real, I, I really like that analogy because I think many people around New England are just kind of befuddled that they can grow certain types of peppers in northern Vermont now that they never could that are in different zones. And the animals, um, you know, it's it's a much more, I mean, it's sober for us, but it's even a more sober situation because they, they're going to be affected far quick, more quickly than we are because they live in, you know, they live outside, they live in the environment, they're moving north, they're moving up hills to get to places that they're more familiar with. Um, and uh, you know, we're going to have to face some of those same questions pretty soon, too. And Kabul, um, you know, when you see this, doesn't it just make more sense to people who maybe thought, eh, that doesn't really have anything to do with climate change? I mean, I, I just don't see how else you can um, just dismiss it now. If you are sitting in um, New England in February, mid-February, and it's going to be 50, you know, for the next several days. Yeah, I mean, thankfully to that point, policymakers have woken up just in the last couple of years. And so where there would be building in the past, you know, or zoning in the past for building, um, all of those, they all need, that all needs to get re rethought and it needs to be better planned for a warming world. I think that adaptation and climate resiliency needs to be on the hearts and minds of every policymaker, local, state, and federal because as things change, we must change with them. Nature has its own rules. We've been trying to bend nature to our rules. It's time that we live in harmony and are stewards of the land versus exploiting the land versus exporting the land. And I do see this in policy. And I'm, you know, I'm really happy to work with policymakers on these issues because um, that's how we empower people. And that's how we solve issues is with collective input and community. And it's starting to really be built um, locally and state and federal. Um, speaking of uh, trying to shepherd good policy to pay attention to what's happening on the land, I thought that this uh, what's happening in Oregon, um, what some people are called Fermageddon, uh, is just appalling. 1.1 million acres of dead trees in Oregon. And this is connected to 
extreme heat conditions and drought. You know, uh, everybody on the West Coast has been dealing with drought um, in a very serious way. And by the way, we are we have been dealing with drought here in Massachusetts and New England as well. Uh, but this is a visual example of drought, no trees, and even in a place known for lushness, the hillsides are now have these dead trees in the middle. I'd just like to get you all's reaction to Fermageddon, Dr. Bernstein. You know, we've all, I think, got it in our minds that we know what to expect from the world we live in, uh, especially when it comes to when spring starts and when winter starts and what the temperature should be and how much rainfall. And, and the, the, the carbon pollution that's going in the atmosphere changes those rules of the game. And I think the challenge is it takes a lot of time and education to get people into the mindset that this is something that is real and that, importantly, it is solvable. When you bring it down to the livelihood of farmers here in Massachusetts, the fact that their livelihoods are at risk, and then I think about the children I care for um, and the very real health effects of you know wildfire smoke, which we've seen here in Massachusetts, of ozone pollution from warming and how that matters to their health. Once we get to that point, once we get the reality that this is a personal issue, I think we see a lot more interest in, in, in the conversation around what we're doing about it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S., and Kabul Eames, political director of Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest in Massachusetts climate policy and much more. Uh, let's take a listen to Governor Maura Healey. Here she is on her first full day in office, issuing an executive order creating a climate chief in her cabinet. I've signed an executive order, our first executive order, which establishes the position of climate chief we're the first state in the nation to have such a position at the cabinet level. I've appointed Melissa Hoffer to be the Massachusetts first ever climate chief. Uh, chief Hoffer is responsible for driving climate policy across executive department agencies and offices and ensuring that climate change is considered in all relevant decision making. Now, this is huge. In in a conversation with you all, I think about a year ago, we talked about Miami naming a uh, chief heat guru. And that was first in the nation um, kind of thing. So here we have in the cabinet of the governor, someone whose focus will be to make certain that um, across the board, environmental issues are at the top or embedded. How big a deal is this? I'll start with you, Dr. Bernstein. The reason that it's so important, Callie, and so um, I think transformative is because climate touches everything. Uh, it reminds me in some ways of the response of the federal government to 9-11, where we realized that you can't really create national security when you have silos between all the agencies that touch on it. You really need an integrated approach. And I think that's true with climate. It touches on housing, it touches on ag, it touches on energy, it touches on health. Uh, and so it's critical to have someone working at that interface. And so my hope is that she'll be able to catalyze even faster progress uh, on, on both reducing, uh, finding innovative ways to reduce our carbon emissions, and also uh, building resiliency uh, to, to the 
folks in our, our commonwealth who are most at risk. Well, Beth, this makes it part of the conversation, literally, <laughs> you who come from the conversation, you know, all the time. Uh, so it never gets taken off the table in terms of trying to have conversations about other issues that are impacting Massachusetts um, and uh, their lot, their daily lives. So it it feels like it's a bigger deal than um, maybe some might be viewing it as. It, it is. It's gigantic, actually. I, I was really pleased to see it. I mean, it's, you know, the governor's, you know, walking the walk and, and making sure there's a position who's going to be accountable for how we're dealing with our climate change. Are we meeting our goals? So it, it really, it, it is so significant. And Melissa Hoffer is is so amazing. I mean, she, um, you know, led litigation against ExxonMobil for deception about the risk climate change poses to to their business and global financial markets. She um, really knows the environment, the law. And uh, I think it's just a, a lovely thing. And I think you're going to see other states following suit. Hmm. Um, so, Cobble, because this is where you live, um, some advocates are like, yay, great, we're having somebody in the cabinet that's, that signals significance, but not enough direct action. We still need more direct action. Are they being premature? Should they give her a minute? Or or are they concerned that they're, this may be going in a direction where they feel like it'll be stepping away from direct action? Well, I mean, first I should point out, so I was at that speech um, and I was at other events with the administration during those couple of days. And the the overall atmosphere, I have to say, with not just legislators, but activists that were all that were also there was pure excitement, pure adrenaline. And I don't want us to ever stop feeling that way because this is a sea change in policy and it's significant. That being said, you know, these communities in particular were the Eastie substation. They have been burned time and time again by policymakers. So it is critical that we move quickly on some of these issues like pipelines, like peaker plants, because they are runaway issues and it's much harder to stop them if you don't get ahead of them. And some of these, I mean, obviously are, you know, a little bit further down the line than others, but they are pushing for this administration to stop those processes or at least move the Eastie substation closer to the airport because basically what it is, it's just, a, it's a toxic site that's right on the water. It's right next to playgrounds. I mean, it, it's just it's just poor planning. And again, this, these were plans that were made years ago. So rethinking and and um, having the forethought to put in new policies now that the science is so clear is what these advocates are pushing for. And I and I really am hopeful that the administration will pay attention and reroute some of these projects. Okay. Well, we'd be keeping an eye on that. And uh, she has 180 days. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that's a firm, firm deadline, but that was the number that was put out that in 180 days, she'll have some overarching plan um, to present to the public and um, to the governor. So we'll be hearing a lot from uh, Melissa Hoffer uh, in her new role. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Now, I am really excited about this story. Beth, the vaccination of honeybees. So here we have a situation where someone's come up with a vaccine 
And at first, of course, I read the headlines and thought, how are they going to shoot the little bees? But no, they, they, <laughs> they mix it into uh, <laughs> mix it into uh, food that they take in. And so that's how it happens. But let's talk about this is a big deal too: vaccination of honeybees. It is. And, you know, I, I, it, this is actually the first vaccine for an insect, which is kind of amazing, oh. um, given how much um, damage they can do and how much they're affected by various things. So. Um, a company called Dalen um, Animal Health announced that they have conditional approval from the USDA, the you know the Agriculture Federal Agriculture Division, to um, to have a vaccine by you know putting uh, the vac- vaccine in the hive um, to prevent something uh, called foul brood, and foul brood is really devastating for honeybees, and it, it got its name because. You, if you open up the hive, you can actually smell it. Feel it smells like decay. It smells very foul. And when a honeybee colony is detected with it, you know people have to destroy that that colony. They have to uh, get rid of all the appliances and tools that they use for that colony. It's it's so incredibly uh, uh, can spread very quickly between hive and hive. So um, the, the background is super fascinating. Um, for years, they were giving um, honeybees antibiotics just like they do for livestock and what happens we all know when you give a lot of antibiotics they develop antibiotic resistance so about four years ago or five years ago the usda started requiring a vet vet to give a prescription for this antibiotic because they were so concerned about it and this then prompted i think real efforts to advance vaccines for honeybees and i'm I'm super curious what's going to happen next me too. I, this is amazing. Um, way in, Kabul. What do you think? I mean, it's it it really it, it is remarkable what we when we put our heads together what we can come up with, and I think it just shows that humanity can think outside of the box and get itself out of really sticky situations. So yeah, I'm really hopeful for this. Literally, honey and <laughs> sticky situations. Uh, Dr. Bernstein. Now you do people, but of course your people are impacted by. Um, what uh, condition, good condition, we hope honeybees will be in. So big deal, huh? It is. And I think, (laughs) Callie, uh, bees are a really good case study in understanding environmental challenges to humanity writ large. You know, it's not just infections that bees are under assault from. Uh, Climate change is a major deal for honeybees because it changes where their food is available and when it's available. Uh, they're also under assault from from pesticides. And, and the reality is that the loss of colonies from all these forces, infections, climates, uh, chemicals, and maybe other stressors, um, is causing increased loss of the colonies, which means that the foods that are requiring these pollinators are going to be more expensive. And what foods are those? Well, those are exactly the foods that I am asking all of our children to eat more of, fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Hmm. Well, one of the reasons I enjoy um, these ongoing conversations uh, with you three is that they are ongoing. So that means that um, often we will have discussed something, then it rolls around again in a in a different format or or perhaps with uh, more intensity. And such is the case with gas stoves. We talked about it, the risk of gas stoves, the move for to go to electric uh, in general, but certainly gas stoves were a big deal. And so now it got kicked in a high gear. Dr. Bernstein, you've already been quoted in a piece in the New York Times saying no one should freak out about this news. So uh, take a moment to just say, 
what's real and what isn't. Yes, we should be moving toward electric. We're not banning. Those two things are are clear. But beyond that, where are gas stoves in terms of our daily risk? Sure, Kelly. I, I think that this is a huge health equity issue. So the gas stoves clearly release chemicals into the air that are that are well known to cause problems for lungs and probably brains and hearts too. Uh, and you know how much you breathe them in is depends on how much you use your stove and and how much you ventilate or are able to ventilate your kitchen, how much air circulation it is. So you know in homes where there's a small kitchen, it's the middle of winter, there's no air circulation, there's no hood to suck the you know gas fumes out of the room. The concentrations can clearly get high enough to to really irritate lungs. So the name of the game here, and I think the critical message is, they're really simple, effective interventions. You can uh, open a door or window, turn on a fan if that's viable. Certainly, if you have a hood, use it. And if you don't have access to any of those things, you know, minimize use and make use of other appliances to substitute, whether that's your microwave, a crock pot. Uh, you know, even in some cases, there are you know you can get a relatively inexpensive uh, electric induction cooktop. But I think it's absolutely critical that we recognize that we're going to get off gas because we have to get off gas, and and we have to focus on the equity piece of this. So when when this news came out, and and as you rightly point out, Kelly, you know this is not necessarily new information. It just got brought to the fore. Um, people who can afford to tr- switch are running to the store, buying induction stoves. They're putting in electric outlets where they you know, need to put in. But, but who does that leave behind? Well, it leaves behind those folks who don't have the money to spend on those things. And that's why I think it's so important to think about the monies that are coming right now at unprecedented vol- <laughs> quantities from the federal government into states and communities to decarbonize. And if you wanna make a, a, a twofer, to get the carbon out, but also to advance health equity, we really need to think about using those funds to provide resources to get gas stoves out of homes that are where we have children with asthma, adults with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, homes that aren't well ventilated for whatever reason. And and we can do that. We already do it in some ways through mass saves where we're transitioning um, inefficient boilers out, but we can do that here too. You know, I uh, full disclosure, I have a gas stove and I will tell you, after all of the comments that I'd heard about this, particularly when people were freaking out about the the possible banning, not true. I want to emphasize that again. No, I, I was so happy to finally get uh, some information that said use the vent more or always, which I honestly have to say I rarely use the vent unless I know it's going to be, you know, I know it'll be some odoriferous thing that I need to deal with. But just the common use of the vent is very helpful inside. And, you know, we're lucky again in one way because because we've had a warm winter. There's probably a lot of people in the group that you're uh, referring to, Dr. Bernstein, who need some equity in this, who are not, therefore, using their uh, stove as a heating um, uh, device as opposed to a cooking device, which often has happened uh, in the past. So there's a lot going on here, but I'm just glad to get the reality on the table. Uh, Beth and Cobble, what say you? You know, this is, I mean, Dr. Bernstein's study was was fantastic and, and I think very practical because you're right, he's right, you can't, you need to find ways right now to mitigate the, the dangers for kids with asthma, um, et cetera, and, and, and families. 
Um, I will say this is part of a much bigger push to electrify homes in general. Um, you know, if you recall a few years ago, Brookline had tried to ban um, new gas lines and I think overturned because um, it, it wasn't legal. I forget. I don't know the exact thing. And and you're seeing across the country this effort to really say, let's make home, let's electrify homes completely. Um you know, in some ways I had thought, and I think some advocates wanted California, which often tends to be a leader in renewable energy uh, laws and um, climate change reductions, take this up. Um, I, I don't think it has yet, um, but I, I think it's coming. And this is just one more kind of check mark um, it, it, towards this idea of complete electrification, which would really, you know, begin to, to 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 say goodbye to the gas lines that were once uh so a so-called bridge to a clean future you know it was it was not as dirty as coal not as clean as renewable um so that's still to be determined mm, Kabul. well i'm happy to report that it that it has happened here in massachusetts uh we just passed a climate law that allowed for places like brookline to build fossil free buildings um, and there is a new stretch code as well that has a pathway that is completely fossil fuel free and net zero. So we are taking those strides in state. There are several bills that will that were filed this year that do um, say all electric for the state because the the you know the patchwork quilt way of doing it is is not ideal, right? It, it, it pits cities and towns against one another, but it is happening in Massachusetts, thankfully, and I do think that it will grow to more cities and towns. So lots of good things coming down the pike, I think, in the gas stove uh, debate. And I think a lot more awareness as a result of it, actually, about um, gas stoves versus electric, but what are we talking about in general? So in some ways, um, it began a, a deeper conversation, I think, for a lot of people who had not even been paying attention. So we'll, we'll I think it all plays together um, um, in some way. So anyway, that's a almost upbeat story to end on today. And I want to thank you all for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Dr. Aaron Bernstein is the Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Beth Daly is the Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S., and Kabul Eames is the Political Director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Coming up, chances are, if you're an art fan and a museum goer, you've seen Western artwork featuring Black people. Their likenesses are tucked in the corners of the canvases, but also boldly staring out from the frames of portraits. Author Zaria Ware has unearthed the life and histories of the men and women who served as models for much of this work, as well as the Black artists who rose to the top of their profession in the early part of the 20th century. But this is no dry recitation of facts. Ware's new book is an entertaining romp through juicy details and fascinating history. Black Art, the audacious legacy of Black models and artists in Western art, is our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.